Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast, recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. Episode 22. It has been a bit since our last recording, but I'm very pleased to be able to gather around the microphones again with my co-hosts, Lavelle and Carlo. Hello, gentlemen. Morning, everybody. Hey, good morning. These are the first words that I've uttered all day, so my voice may sound a little odd, but I have coffee here and I am rearing to go. How's everybody? Pretty good. Doing great. Um, so what kind of coffee, I'm interested, what kind of coffee uh, setup you got going on, Tim? I feel like you could surprise me here. So years ago, I went on eBay. I got obsessed with espresso machines years ago, and I went on eBay and I bought a broken Italian espresso machine by this company Pasquini. It was very inexpensive because it did not work. And, you know, I love taking things apart. Well, as are all the things Italian made. Yeah, right, right. All right. Yeah, it was basically like buying a Fiat that didn't really work. Yeah. So so this this particular model is from the early 90s. It's serial number 83, and they still make it today. So there's probably, like, you know, tons of these things around the world by now, but I have number 83. Um, and it didn't work. So, you know, I love taking things apart. I bought, uh, you know, a new set of wrenches that were friendly to the brass inner workings of the thing. I got a, a couple of service manuals that I found in various forms of scanned PDFs in Italian, etc. And I, I got the thing working again, and his, it has been trucking for like six or seven years now. And we do, um, you know, it's an espresso machine, uh, and it has a hot water dispenser on the side of it, so you can do Americanos really easily. So that's what we usually do, is we'll make, a, you know, two shots of espresso and then fill the rest of the hot water, give it a, give it a stir, and... You're all set. Yeah. All right, let's jump right into episode 22, first section, hobby progress. Carlo, what's been new with you in the hobby? Well, uh, as you know, I like to, to build stuff while we're recording, just so I can mess up your sound. So uh, <laughs> but uh, so recently, uh, the big thing that just dropped was a Shadow Spear box, and I got one um, on release this time. So um, Colin and I split it, actually. I got the Imperium half. He got the Chaos half. Uh, we met for barbecue for lunch, and we exchanged because he uh, lives right near where I work, so it was perfect. Um, and then uh, I'm I'm really enjoying them. Like I'm having, so I just I just finished building all the bodies, and I'm going through trying to see trying to wolf them up a bit. So I usually do that with heads and shoulder pads, but you can't. The shoulder pads are built in on these models, so you'd really have to do some like extreme hobbying to to replace them you know so um um and i'm trying to take see what space wolf heads i like on these guys but i really i really like the heads that they come with i just think they're really great models um they are a little one-dimensional like you can only build them as are all the primary stuff i found you can really only build them in one way um because each each um each model has specific little grooves and pieces um, on them where they can only fit this arm or this leg and et cetera. You know? um, hey, can, can we talk about that for just a second? The move in that direction, it, 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 it's got a good and a bad. The good is it allows for newer, newer modelers to not make mistakes and be able to do it simply. But for experienced modelers or people who want a different look, it makes things really, really difficult. I'm still up in the air about those two things. What, what, which way is better? There should be some middle ground, but it's really, really hard when something is fit and you can see the actual groove, and that's the only way to go. 
And if you do it another way, it might not be the bond might not be as strong. What do you guys think? I agree. I th- that's one of the reasons. That, that's one of the problems I have with the Primaris models. Is they're so everything is so integrated into fewer a fewer number of parts, which is good on one hand and bad on the other. In that, it does take some serious cutting and removing of bits, and it, it takes some real modification to get them to be customized. Whereas with the old Space Marines, you know, it's much easier to just slap stuff together. You had more options. So I'm I'm as you as you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Primaris models, and that's another another check in the negative column for them in my book. Yeah, I. I... I agree. Um, I think it's too limiting. Uh, they've kind of taken a step backwards with this because the older Space Marines, and I think that's why a lot of people, there's this, this struggle between you know upgrading, like keeping the old Space Marines and upgrading to the Primaris. And I think um, it, it's just a, a little disappointing that you can't you know move put this arm down so he's holding the gun to his side instead of straight out, you know, or it's, and the way that they've done it is you can't just like shave a peg off and realign it. It's like some of these arms, you know, they fit very um, precisely into these spots. So you can't play around with it too much. Um, With that said, I really like a lot of the poses that they're, that they've introduced. Um, they've got this one guy that's dropping a smoke grenade and they've, you know, done that in a really kind of, uh, intelligent way where the, the smoke is like kind of trailing off of his thumb. So it looks like the grenades already left his hand. Um, yeah, take a look at, if you look at the box, it's on the bottom left of the picture. And then, um, they have a, uh, like a built-in apothecary into the squad, which I think is really cool. Um, I like that they're simplifying in terms of rules. They're simplifying the, the units a bit so you don't have a lot of mixed weaponry within each unit and i know there are a lot of players that really like having that um where you get like you know a squad with a, a missile launcher and a plasma gun um i think that's really cool uh for me um I, I personally i just like having each unit have its own dedicated role and um you know it depends I, um i got a buddy who who plays a true I guess it's like a 26 founding of Imperial Fists, you know, Ian, and he's got he's got several troop squads of the old Marines, and you know he's got a very specifically has a missile launcher in this one. He's got a melt gun over here, a plasma gun over here, and it's the same loadout every time. I, I wish I could do that, but I just <laughs> it's a lot to manage. Have, yeah, yeah, it is. So it, it's very complicated, and I think like you know, depending on your level of tactical prowess, um, for me, I'm I'm. I'm very basic, so I like oh, these guys shoot. These guys, these guys smack dum dum. <laughs> want hammer, yeah. you know? <laughs> for sure. Have you been getting any games in? So for Fernando's bachelor party, we had this big APOC uh, that Justin ran. It was super cool. Um, so we all drove up to Rhode Island for three days. You know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, the first night we played um, his like he designed his own sci-fi like rp uh, rpg system which is pretty cool um like a his own uh, i'm sorry not system but like uh his own campaign right so he ran it off of very similarly to what dnd fifth edition rules are so we had fun with that and then all day saturday and you guys i don't know if you guys follow our instagram account but you'll be able to see pictures of it we ran uh it was we had 
six players plus Justin, who was kind of DMing the event. So he stepped in and like kind of threw a few points on the board here and there where we played um, three games. Um, the first two games were a 2v2 and a 1v1 next to each other, 1,500 points uh, per player. So the um, the doubles game obviously took a lot longer, but it gave the singles uh, players some time to relax in between ga- uh, games. So, And then the... Um, the last game was an APOC. Uh, everybody had 1,500 points still. Um, and they set up the board. It was pretty cool if you look at the pictures. There was some, like, catwalks going all the way around the middle. And we got, like, the, the cool thing about it was that we had played, there were three of us playing Imperium armies, and like Space Marines, and three of us playing Chaos. So it was uh, Black Legion, Thousand Suns and Slanesh versus uh, Space Wolves, Imperial Fist Successor Chapter, and uh, Death Watch. So we got our teeth kicked in all day as Imperials. <laughs> so the, the last game, they let us. Uh, we kind of did like a def- defend the last, defend the last stand kind of a thing, and set up in the middle of the board. And Chaos had to come attack us from every side. It was pretty cool. Um, we ended up winning that one due to just like shenanigans of deployment and them letting us have like a little bit of an advantage since we were losing all day, but it was a really fun game. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah. How about, how about you guys? Well, I've been playing a lot of 40 K games. Um, I've been really focusing on my custodies. And so most of my action has been with the same custodies list that I've been cycling and make, making a couple of adjustments. And, you know, after white dwarf dropped, um, I became the winner of the world as probably some, the only person with three of every assassin already painted and ready to go. <laughs> I grabbed my white wolf, emptied my shelf of assassins and went out and caused havoc across the uh, entire Delaware Valley. And I'm very proud to say <laughs> my favorite part of any game is when people say, what, what? <laughs> Where's that from? So that that was a lot of good. What I have been focusing a lot of my hobbying on is Titanicus. I played Titanicus. I purchased the the, the big box when it came out, and I tabled it. And then um, Eric called me and said he, he wanted to get a game in. So I had uh, just a basic set that, that came with that painted up. And then I, I met him over at Gamers Heaven, and we sat down, and we played a game and worked through the rules. I loved that game so much, I ran around grabbing every thing I needed to fill out fill out my maniple. Really? That's cool. Yeah, it's it's I can't even describe how much I like the game. And it's a different level. I just like the, the theme, the mechanics. It in my opinion, Games Workshop knocked that out of the park. Titanicus is really, really good. And so I've been uh, building and, 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 and organizing my maniple and figuring out what I want to do there. And you know the little units in this game are the Imperial Knights and that's pretty funny. <laughs> Right, and you got they got to buddy up in the system. You need at least three buddying up to make a unit. So I, I've been um, filling that out, spending a lot of time with that. The other thing that I've been doing is I've been sitting in, at the table with all the elements out uh, for Blackstone Fortress. I can't honestly say I've been playing it because I've been losing so miserably. <laughs> I keep thinking I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I have to say one model in the Blackstone Fortress piece that I didn't really pay attention to at first 
the Nega Vault Cultus. That that model is so good, and I really had a chance to. My all of my models are built in paint, but I really had a chance to look at it and say, this is a really good piece. The other thing about Blackstone Fortress is all the models in there have stats to be able to play, um, play them in 40k. But I resisted the urge of going around building an army around it. I did. Um, I did. I executed a strange trade with the person and gave up my Trajan Valoris because I hardly play with them. But I immediately went out and bought another one just in case. <laughs> I traded it for um, a Forge World uh, custom character, and um, so I'm waiting for that to uh, get all done. But that, other than that. My my focus have been on my custodies and 40k, and uh, my custodies with my assassin harrowers and Titanicus. I have um, I've been playing a lot of games in different places as usual, and getting a lot of games in with a lot of older players. And when I say older, I mean people who are returning back and helping them walk through the differences. Some of these people haven't played since third edition helping them learn and walk through the difference between third and the current edition. And it's been really, really good. I did, I did take my, um, my, it, it, since I think the last time we played, I did take my uh, dark angels out for another walk. And when I was done with that, I walked them right back where I had them. <laughs> oh. Did the Terminators not do well again? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, about that, double, might... that double shot strategy though. What was up with that? Even with that, and you know, maybe I'm spoiled because you know, when you you played the custodian guard and you then you come up with the terminator, it's just not strong enough. Oh yeah, they just mop the floor of them, right? Yeah. So you know, I, I I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna table them for a little bit. I love that. Um, speaking of which, I th- I think one of the games that um you showed me the other day. So Lavelle and I were talking about bat, bat, battle reports. You know, I was interested in maybe s- to start doing battle reports. You know. And we could post them up for the podcast or whatever. And um, he had showed me. I, I really want like to do like a no nonsense battle report, like something really short, very concise, just gets to the point. Because I don't enjoy sitting there and watching like a three hour real time battle report. You know, I want to. I don't have time for that. So I. And then Lavelle showed me these battle reports. That do you know? Do you know what the guy's name is that does them? Um. Twilight something I can't remember. Yes, I can't remember it. But uh, we'll we'll get that up on the uh, on the Facebook post when we post the the episode. They're like ten minute videos. He runs through the army list really quickly, turn by turn, summarizes what happens, and uh, does like a really quick analysis of the game afterwards. But and he does it all with um, this kind of the digitized computer voice. You, you know the. Uh, where you type in the text and it reads it like, uh, and, and clearly what is not a human voice, which is great. And they breaks it up with these little uh, movie clips in between for comedic relief. So I really, if we were going to do, uh, I know we're going to do like the chosen at the end of the episode. I'm telling you, that's what mine is right now. I'm stealing it from LaBelle. Cause that was <laughs> gravy. <laughs> it's pretty good. It is pretty good. So I, I want to, um, talk about a couple of things that um i came across that you guys might have you guys seen data cards like i just got the data cards for the imperial knights well i actually got some with the uh shadow spear box as like a promo why can you not get data cards for every army 
It's it's a it, it's a really good player's eight. Yeah, I, I, I so I got some data cards. I saw I you know it was, I was I can't even remember where I was. It was on a discount rack. I don't think it was even in the gaming store. <laughs> and I I snatched them up and it was really really good. And I said what. Why can I not have this for my custodies? Yeah, so the the data cards I, I thought was a really good add on to the game, and it, it's one of those things that make the that can make the game go smoother and sl- and and speed up your quote unquote lookup time. I've seen it before where people come to the table with custom ones that they have made, and it does help. It does make it easier to get through stuff more quickly, which is nice. Instead of flipping through an iPad or flipping through, you know, in my case, like my game last night, 16 pages of notes, it's uh, it does make things a little more elegant. Yeah. Okay. I really enjoy them. Um, that's a good point, and I, I see that they're they're making an effort to release them with the newer models and and uh, newer boxes, but uh, it would be nice to see them for the whole codex. That's that's a a an effort though to pump it out for every model in existence right now. I think think what they're waiting for is to trim the model line down. Hmm. But I think. couldn't you just? Uh, it's a, it's it's a, it's essentially a uh, uh, um, a smaller version of the page that's in the codex. And what it would allow you to do? Yes, you could carry your codex, but you could have just the cards for what the models that you're using. Right, the units that you're using. Right, that's a good point. There's no like designing they have to do involved, right? They've already made the data sheets. It's not like they have to sit down and make every data sheet over. So Correct. just throw them on a, a template and print them out. And they've had them for most units in Age of Sigmar for quite a while. The uh, War Scrolls in Age of Sigmar are you can buy them. You can buy them in packs, like the you know the Iron Jaws army, for instance, has a War Scroll pack that you can get with little tokens and cards for every unit. Oh, yeah. And on on the the subject of product review, I purchased the, <laughs> I purchased the model carrier for Blackstone Fortress. So you have this model, I mean box, and then you have all the models that assumably you painted up and you built and painted up. And so now you want a, a a case to carry them. So if I want to come to Tim's house and play Blackstone Fortress, I grab my box, I grab my model case, off I go. Here's the problem for a model company. This model carrier is a fail. <laughs> <laughs> this is a GW case. This is a GW <laughs> fail, and here is why. So it's it's got some flexibility in the way that you can put the models in, right? And so in some instances, I've actually seen model carriers, and I've got some that I use that are like this. So if you're playing a game like Infinity, if you're playing a game even like War Machine – where you have different, maybe it works, and you've got small units. But these models in this line, the Blackstone Fortress line, are so, and the best way I can say it is, they're so fiddly and so different. Since they know the models that came with Blackstone Fortress, they could have made an insert inside this case that fit each model. They knew what came. I, I was I was stunned when I opened it up. Wow. And so now... Like some of the uh, the, uh, the trader uh, trader guard, they have little spikes with skulls on them, and and it, it's real fiddly and fitting it in. And I'm thinking this this doesn't make any sense. They should they could have made it so that you they could have even made the case a little bit bigger, so that you can insert it in there. I thought that you know you have failed me for the last time. 
<laughs> when I put everything in there. And so it's it's a real struggle repacking that. I would like to see something similar come out for Titanicus. Because even though these are miniature games, what you should be able to do is pick up the box and and pack it and, and just go. They're, uh, their carrying cases are generally pretty bad compared to what's on the market now. Like years ago, they, uh, they, they, you know, they were a gaming company. There weren't a lot around, and they made cases, and they were, you know, as great as you you knew that they would work because they were the only thing available. Now you have all these companies that specialize in gaming cases like KR and Battle Foam, and they make things that perfectly fit certain models and especially those models like you were talking about with all the little fiddly bits and wires and you know models with whips and stuff like that like this the slanesh and the uh Drukari models you know are so hard to transport and you really need something that's going to fit them perfectly and you know i <laughs> gw needs to step up their case game because it's not working out mm, that's too bad that's too bad yeah yeah, yeah. It, you don't expect that from a game company. Yeah. <laughs> I saw one, Lavelle, that I think Battlefoam put out that was a rectangular insert you put inside the cardboard Blackstone Fortress box that held all the minis, and it looked pretty good. It did make the box cover sit, I think, like a half inch higher than it normally would, but it lets you put like all the cards and the boards and the books and everything in the bottom of the box. Then you put this insert in it, and then you can stand up the miniatures inside the insert that looked like a, maybe a good solution too but then you're limited to carrying the box upright and horizontal or horizontally rather you know so it doesn't fall on its side or whatnot which is it's a big box too to carry around so tim what is your hobby progress hobby progress well i got in a game so sasha alex has started a vigilus alpha campaign for us all to enjoy uh, his plan is to run it from March to June, uh, approximately one game a week. There's lots of teams. There's lots of different landing zones. It's really cool. It's it has the uh, the, the necessary level of narrative and complication for the missions. It sounds like, which is really great. Um, meaning it's you know it's deep. It's well thought out. Of course, when Alex puts something together, it's it's usually intense uh, strategically, which is nice. So I got in my first game last night against John, his Dark Angels army. Um, if I added up the score. Appropriately, which I had to do a couple of times after the game last night before I reported our results to Alex. We tied uh, five to five. It was fifteen hundred points. It was a uh, mission with four objectives spaced equally outside of our deployment zones, which was Dawn of War. There was four big pieces of line of sight blocking terrain. Great game. John's John's super fun to play against. Uh, it was bloody. I blew up his land raider, which had a bunch of uh, death shroud or not death shroud, um, uh, deathwing terminators in it with uh, the maces and storm shields. I blew that one up. Oh uh, yeah! I had to blow that one up turn one just to keep those terminators away from me. I brought f- almost forty Skatarii infantry models, which was fun. Um, I had two dune crawlers with the neutron laser, which is fun. Uh, it was a good game. You know, it took a while. We got through four turns in two and a half hours ish. Um, but we had, we had a good game of it, and it's, you know, a tie is, a tie is good. We both, uh, I think, came away from that game with a smile on our face, which was awesome. That's always a good thing. I, like, I, I always love close games like that. I think they'll leave you really satisfied. Yeah, satisfied is a good word, yeah. Um, and we were talking last night, uh, you had mentioned mixed 
uh, like mixed weapon units, right? Like where you have a couple of special weapons in a unit and whatnot. This, the, the list I brought last night with all these Skatarii, uh, Rangers, and Vanguard in it, I did not do any upgrades to any model. So they all had the same exact weapon, which, I th- which, was, which was really... It made playing with them a little bit faster and made it a little bit more fun. Because um, normally in the past, I've run one guy with an arc rifle, one guy with plasma, one guy with the radium carbine pistol. Or the, uh, yeah, and you're like sitting there trying to remember, okay, did I fire this weapon yet? Uh, this is like a comedy. Do I want to use both? Uh, yes, and, and I've gotten into trouble in Guth games in the past where I, I might have brought the unit with the arc rifle, but it was actually plasma, and then I didn't pay the points for the plasma, and did I pay the points for the special pistol on my alpha? And it just gets a little hairy. So um, last night I, I just ran, ran straight, you know, radium carbines and galvanic rifles, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was it was a great game. Um, Tim, did you get a chance to use any of those newer units? No, not yet, not yet. Okay, they're, okay. they're they're built, but I have not had a chance to put them together. Although I, I did tell John about it, and I am looking forward to bringing to you know a bigger point game. But it will be fun to have eighty, uh, eighty. <laughs> Admech troops on the board without counting uh, the cataphrons, but it'll be that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I did, I did come up with a, a color scheme for them, Lavelle. These are peltasts and hoplites. Um, I'm going to do them in like blue and gray to contrast against the red and tan of the uh, Mars Skatarii guys. So that'll be fun. Okay. You know what I did we... want to know was uh, how do we keep ending up on the same team in these events? That's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. Because the fix is in. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. That's like that time that Tim and I um, the <laughs> were, Tim and in I. That, were in that group uh, and everybody challenged me that's right yeah oh yeah, yeah that was hilarious yeah i've been playing a good amount of relic blade which is a small skirmish fantasy game it's made by basically one guy out of his garage it's it's wonderful it's like if i have a four model army you play it on a two foot by two foot square i've been playing with matt who's a great painter and his terrain is like on another level entirely he's ridiculous his terrain is on another <laughs> His terrain. We, we uh, I've been putting pictures on the uh, the Instagram, so so our listeners can, can take a look at the boards we've been playing on. But the, it's just awesome. Um, it's very narrative. We're playing a campaign, and there's a strong RPG element to it, where every mission, every game you play, is worth additional uh, influence points after the game that you can spend on different upgrades. And each upgrade is represented by a card that you print out, and you know I sleeved them and whatnot. So at, at the end of every game, and at the start of the next game, you kind of figure out. You go back to your base camp where you can have specialists who can build you stuff, make you potions, uh, give you spells, etc. And then you can re-equip your, your warband, your, your gang, with, with new items, new weapons, new upgrades and whatnot. It makes it really, really cool. And it, it puts a little bit of extra sting when one guy uh, loses a battle because then you have to replace that model and all the cool stuff that, that model had. Uh, you have to start over again with one of those models, which is neat. It's really easy to gain to pick up. The campaign system is just awesome. It flows. The book flows really well. Art, the artwork is kind of in, is really good. I was saying to Matt, it's kind of nice to play a game system where there's only one artist behind the entire thing because the models and the cards and the book and the whole world building of it is one guy's vision, this guy Sean. So, and it really, it really keeps it tight. You know, there's not a lot of different looks and feels to it. It is one... It is one little idea, really uh, fleshed out nicely, which is great. So, so we've been having a good time playing that. Uh, we've been getting some nice daytime uh, games in when we both have the opportunity to uh, sneak away for a couple hours in the morning, which is awesome. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, 
I started building a Maw Crusher from my Age of Sigmar army, uh, and I did buy another start collecting box. Oh, I forgot you were Xeno scum. Yeah, I got mean, those <laughs> yeah, I got those guys going on. I, re- I did my Nova registration a couple of days late, but Carlo, thank you for reminding me to register for Nova. We're not doing tri- we're not we're not doing trios this year, but I did get some Recon Squad games booked, and I'm finally playing in an Infinity tournament. I'm going to do the <gasps> Infinity Night Fight, which will be fun. I have to relearn how to play the game, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, tournament to kind of, you know, kick me into gear to get back into Infinity, which would be fun. We had a conversation last night about Infinity. Jeff was at Red Caps, who's a, a you know an avid Infinity player. He was playing Kill Team, and we were talking about how uh, there seems to be there seems to be less Infinity in our area since Kill Teams came out. Lavelle, have you found that to be true? That in general, Infinity might be down a little bit since Kill Teams came out. Well, you know, when I go to play Infinity, I'm usually going, you know, with four other, three other players. Uh, yeah, three other players, and we haven't really been playing that much Infinity at Red Caps. I would say there is a uh, the the drop in Infinity play does coincide with that. I don't know if it, if the two are related. Joe is a. a Joe Capina is a big Infinity player, and I know now he plays Kill Team. Uh, I, I, I don't find the two games to be comparable, but it is possible that some people would, you know, move in that direction. Yeah, I feel like they're the games are very, very different. With um, like Infinity, you you're running off a D twenty. Um, it's very. Uh, the rules are so complicated. I think that's why you see more of a drop in Infinity. It's not that the attrition in it is so much more impactful than in another game because you, it's hard for new players to get into Infinity. And when a player stops playing, then you lose your player base very, very quickly, mm. you know, and permanently. Right. Because um, it's like a 200 and. 80 page rule book that's you know you need to read every single page of yeah it's pretty dense yeah yeah it's not it's not the kind of game where you you can just know your models right or else you end up like what <laughs> right <laughs> what did you do how yeah. did you kill my whole army with one right. guy? <laughs> yeah. some other stuff that happened related to the hobby in the last couple of weeks played my first game of magic the gathering slightly unrelated but a friend of mine's son just picked it up, so he taught me how to play last weekend. I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was surprisingly easy to learn how to play. There's not much to the game until you really get into what the what you know the mechanics of the game are really straightforward. But you know the cards obviously get more and more complicated and more and more interesting as you get more and more expensive, I assume. But I enjoyed it. And also kicking myself yesterday after my game as I'm entering my uh, scores into this worksheet that uh, Alex had put up for us all in this campaign, I missed the release of the Solar War novel from Black Library, which is their limited edition, you know, luxuriously bound beginning of the battle for Terra, the battle on Terra uh, in the Horus Heresy series. So I'm kicking myself that I missed that. If any of our listeners are having any uh, buyer's remorse about buying that book, I'd be happy to... uh, to make them feel better and buy it off of them. <laughs> it's not it's not a cheap book, but it looks beautiful, and I'd like to have it in my collection. So that's something I will probably have to be paying a premium for at some point in the future on eBay. So I'll, I'll be keeping an eye out for that one. Or half price from our listeners. Or half price from our listeners. <laughs> yes, yes. We will take a short break. We will come back with Welcome Scout Section 2. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Section 2. Welcome, Scouts. This section we talk about stuff that might be more helpful to newer players to the game, or a good brush up on a good brush up for veteran players of Warhammer 40,000. And Lavelle, you brought this up uh, when you and I recorded the last episode, 21, talking about etiquette, talking about players new to the hobby and etiquette at the table, etc. Uh, why don't you get our conversation started? So I got a couple of things, some minor, some major. So the first thing I want to talk about, let's have a conversation about, is picking up the dice. The correct way is with the finger and thumb. No. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you you are hitting somebody with your uh, assault uh, with multiple heavy bolters. You pick up nine, twelve dice. You roll all nine, twelve. All, all of the 12 dice, and then you start to pick up dice. Everybody's been there, right? Yep. So one of the ways that I find, because you don't want any confusion. So one of the couple of things that, and it depends on how well you know your, your opponent as well. So do you pick up the hits or do you pick up the misses? That seems like it's a very minor thing. It's, it seems like a very minor thing. And when do you pick them up? I'm going to tell you what I do. The first thing I do is roll all the dice and confirm that my opponent has seen all of the dice that have been rolled and whether any dice is cocked. People have different ideas and concepts of what's a cocked dice and what's not. And so the first time that occurs, or even before, I think you should discuss with your opponent how you determine that. So one thing that I use often is, can you lay a flat dice can you lay a dice on it without it falling off? Other people use, is the dice completely flat? And other people, which I do not like, is can you determine which is the dominant facing? I don't like that one, but I've seen people yeah. do it. And so after you've confirmed that they've seen the dice, you've t handled any cock dice, then picking up any dice that are this is my uh philosophy i pick up any dice that miss i leave the hits on the table so that my opponent can re reaffirm that i in fact have eight hits seven hits three whatever it is i leave the hits on the table and then i actually declare okay these are my hits now i'm going to make my wound rolls and then i pick them up and roll them and follow the same process. I often leave my wound rolls on the table while they take their saves. I am also not opposed to my opponent picking up my wound rolls and then rolling saves, even if it's with my dice. Very few people like that. They, they don't like using my accursed dice. Now, I am also the type of player, and I encourage everybody else to look at your opponent's dice, not because I, I look at my opponent's dice, not because I feel like my opponent's going to cheat me, but sometimes they'll overlook a hit. And, I, I, you know, I want the game to play out as the game is playing out. Um, you know, wait a minute, you missed that hit. The three's hit. That's a hit. So I, I make sure that my opponent is not shortchanging themselves as well. I've I've seen some games where people have said, "Well, if you don't see your hit, that's your loss." I don't play that way. What do you guys think about that overall concept of being mindful and getting out front how you're going to handle dice rolling? I like to say what I'm rolling, what I'm what I need to succeed, and then I'll say out loud, "I'm picking up the misses." Then I have a deliberate process I do every time, and I'll count what's a success on the table and then re-roll from those. 
these are the dice, picking up the misses, rolling those successes, done. From my army, because I do have a lot of shooting attacks, I have two pools of ten different colored big dice. So I can mix and match. So these two dice might be for one weapon. These other ten are from the you know the primary weapon in that unit and i also find it easier for me to count whereas if i had you know say 40 randomly colored dice i'd be counting okay 18 shots from the castellan robots okay 246 you know so this way i can grab all the dice take from the two pools of 10 of two different colors leave two out and i know i have 18 dice in my hand so i always have on the table my command points dice 10 silver dice 10 purple dice and that's it Tim, let me say, after that uh, game we played not too long ago, I actually went out and got me a portable dice tray similar to the one that you have because I thought that was such a great idea. I go around with a whole slew of D6, and one of the things that I have to say is um, color-coding your dice to the weapons and rolling all of the dice at the same time is so instrumental in speeding up gameplay. It can have a great impact because really – Dice rolling can suck up so much of the time of the game. If you've got it organized, okay, I've got 24 shots here, four, 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 and then roll them. Yeah, that, that can be really, really instrumental in speeding up the game. Carlo, in your play, have you ever seen, and I'm going to use this term, I'm coining it, dice controversy? <laughs> yeah, like uh, I know a couple times I've seen people roll something, like in a tournament, people roll their dice and they pick them up really quickly. That's like, right. that was a two. But for me, a lot of the time, and I've learned, I think maybe when I started playing, I would try and like call people out on something like that. But at this point, I usually just let it slide and try to say, hey, try to ask them like, hey, do you mind rolling a little bit slower so I could so I could see the hits? Let me tell you this. Once I was playing, and this is a different game, Infinity, I was at the Nova and I was playing a, a great painter and a great, uh, he's a great Infinity player. His name is Nick. And I rolled the dice, and it landed behind terrain that he couldn't see. And it was clearly cocked. But I didn't – I picked. I said, okay, this is a cocked dice, and picked it up and re-rolled it before he had a chance to see it was, in fact, uh, a cocked dice. And he said, well – he just mentioned it in passing. Well, I, I didn't see the dice. And then it became a gentleman's quarrel. Well, then I won't re-roll it. No, 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 re-roll it. No, no, that's not fair. No, no, sir, you please. Oh, please, sir. No, I insist. <laughs> so, you know, that that's a big thing. You don't think about it, but, you know, your opponent is involved in your dice rolling. So when you roll the dice, make, make your, you know, you don't have to do the same thing, but just make it clear how you're going to handle it. At the beginning, make sure that they see the dice roll you know, the the dice rolling is the random element of the game, which most games have. And if it's a random ele- element, let it be random. You know, take what comes up. If you roll a crap load of ones, you roll a crap load of ones. I love what you just said, Lavelle, about your opponent being involved in your dice rolling. It's important to keep in mind. It's a great, a great turn of phrase there. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to – so we, we talked about dice and, you know, understanding dice rolling. When you're at the table, kind of clarify that. Um, at the same time, you know, I've been in dice, I've been in games where my opponent, you know, has got a great army. I got a great army. We're evenly matched with, but their dice rolls just are terrible. That is the game. That is the game. So understand when you're winning or losing because of the randomness of the dice, 
Um, and that understanding that happens. And when I am winning, because you just have crappy roles, I am not wa- waving the banner of victory. <laughs> right. I, I am not using my tactical acumen <laughs> to declare my victory in this situation. So, you know, it's important to kind of recognize that and understand when you get in the game, there is some random elements and, you know, you're going to be uh, subjected to the whims of it as the game goes on. Another thing that to talk about in terms of uh, like dice rolling eats up a lot of time in a game. And I think this is a good place we could pivot and talk about taking too long to make decisions. This is another piece of etiquette. Uh, I think it's been, you know, last year was a big controversy at LVO, like the slow playing. And I think it's really important to make sure that when you're playing, um, it's considerate of your opponent to make sure that like you, you're effective at making your own decisions and not taking too much time to think about it. Um, but that said, it is a you know it is a strategy game. So you want to to be able to fully enjoy it. You want to have a couple opportunities here and there to kind of stop and think. But I don't think you should be stopping and thinking the entire game. I think it's it eats up too much time and it, it really disrupts the flow of the game. I, I want to point something out, Sasha, Alex. Um, Sasha really one day I was playing a game. And he just happened by, and and he he made some comment to me, and Sasha such, I I I don't use this word lightly. He's such an intelligent player, and he made a comment to me that really really changed my gameplay, and it was probably just an offhand comment to him. He said to me, you know, if you're going to gamble, know that you're gambling, and this is what he meant. There's this uh, uh there's this web page that I use a lot called math hammer 40k eighth edition and it runs through the statistics if you have this strength and you're re-rolling this it, it takes you through all of that you should know what is the likelihood how many wounds you're likely to inflict and um you know what the way he he the, the what his simple comment made me think you know ultimately i'm going to pick up the dice and add an element of randomness in it and if that randomness is not likely to go my way, I can still make that determination to do it. But I need to know that I'm doing it. Like, for example, um, a whole bunch of Imperial Guards could charge a knight, and it is not impossible for them to inflict 20 wounds on that knight. It's not probable. It's not, the math doesn't support that. But it could happen. And so there is a point in the game where you're like, hey, screw it. <laughs> I don't have anything to lose. I'm throwing everything at this thing. And it could oh, go yeah. your way. But you need to know, hey, this right now, I am gambling. So um, understanding those elements and making that decision and tying into what Carlo just said, you know, if you're in that situation, you could hem and haul, get out your calculator and start and slow the entire game down. That takes, even though it, this is a hobby that involves thinking, and it's one of the things I love about it. But you don't want to think so much that, you know, you need the supercomputer behind you. Right, right. The back sure. computer, ding! For sure. Signs point to attack. Can, can we talk about another important element of the game, which is measuring distances? And, and there are some etiquette, there's some etiquette points, I think, to talk about around measuring distances. If there's a measurement that is too close to call accurately... I'll always defer to the other player and let them make that final call. Definitely. 
I mean, unless it's like their interpretation is like really unreasonable, I think definitely because you always want to keep that transparency between you and your opponent. Yep, and it's a good way to avoid a, you know, you don't want to turn it into an argument. You don't want to turn it into a point of contention. Um, so I'll either ask, you know, I'll ask my opponent to measure it, and we'll use whatever they say about it. Or, you know, if neither of us can kind of decide whether it's a, a or B, we'll do you know do a roll off four five six. It's A one two three. It's you know it's B. So you know when you talked about etiquette and measuring, I'm going to tell you one of the pet peeves that I have. I always defer. If it's close enough, it's close enough. That's how I say. Even though there are instances where you are just short, and we can both clearly see it. Those things matter too. Um, a couple of you know things that kind of irritate me a little bit is. When you're doing a critical measurement, you're measuring to see if you're in charge range or, or whatever, and you're so sloppy with your tape measure, you're knocking things over, right? And so when a measurement is critical, one of the things that I always like to do is say to the, my opponent, put your finger on your model. And I'm going to – so we can hold the two models that we're measuring against. And I'll clearly state I'm measuring from this to this. And that can, because when it looks like it's going to be close, it's probably going to be a little contentious. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah, and so one of the things that I have to do is, you know, it has, uh, other times, mo models bumping or moving doesn't really matter. But, you know, especially when you're talking about charging, especially this is a big one, charging when the model is out of line of sight. Because that means that if that, whoever's doing that is not going to even get an Overwatch response. Right. Right. And so those things kind of matter. Often I find when you're talk, you're usually talking about the difference between um, nights and one's going to charge the other. And you want to make sure you're in charge range. And the other thing that I do is I remember it doesn't matter. Like, for example, people forget this all the time when you you come in and let's just say you, you, you deep struck in. You know, I don't care where your model is. We all know you need at least a nine. Because you had to be nine and a micron away. Right. Yep. Right. And so you need at least a nine. And I remind people of that. Okay, well, I'm going to measure this. Well, hold on. You came down here. And so you, whatever it is, you need to be at least nine inches. And we're not going to go back. And I'm not, I'm not real big on going back if you make an error. And we're not going to go back and say they couldn't be placed there. They're there. You're getting ready to charge. Just do our thing. You need a nine. Right. So there are two things that we talked about here on, on this podcast, dice etiquette and measuring etiquette. Those are really, really integral to the game, dice and measuring. And understanding and clarifying those etiquettes can be very, very important um, when you're starting the game. And, you know, if, if you're, I don't know, we're, we all play tournaments and we all want to win. I mean, most of us play tournaments, but you know what? We're, there, there's not thousands, hundreds, Millions of dollars on the line here. <laughs> right, you know. Okay, that's close enough. You made the charge. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. And a big part of that too, Lavelle, is there's also not millions of players playing this game too, right? So right. everything we can do to make sure that we leave that table with, with a friend across it 
is going to be good for the hobby in general and good for the next game we might have with that person because chances are if you don't move out of that area you're going to have another game with that person so the last thing you want to do is come away from that table with any kind of feeling of of ill will or just you know you want it to be super positive for both parties involved so if everybody's on that page if everybody's there to have a good time if everybody's there aware of the fact that 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 this is a relatively small community of people who are into this and it's all of our obligation to try to grow that community and keep it tight and keep it friendly, then, you know, everybody's going to win. Yeah. It, I'm going to talk about a couple of things I do, especially with new players. And when I say new players, I don't mean new to the game, people I haven't played before. Um, one of the things that I like to do at the end of the game, no matter how it ends, is give one or two instances where their decision making or their play was really good. I really liked it when you did that. That was a good move. I I really like to do that. And so I give one or two instances where I thought that was a great play. And I also might mention an MVP model. This one, this model here did something real. I see that a lot on battle reports when they do a recap. And I think it's good to encourage people and remind them, hey, this was really, really good. I, I make it a definite point to do that if I won the game. If I won the game. Because I want them to feel like they're in hour and a half two hours was not wasted yeah yeah that's a great uh that's a great consideration for your opponent level right so making sure that they they had a good experience the other thing that i do is um when i i've not played anybody before i'm across the table I'm, i make a couple of things very clear hey first of all i'm a relaxed and easy player if you forget something let me know i don't mind I don't like going back in a turn. I don't like going back too far. But we can determine, you know, if you forget something, where, where it can fit it in. If you have a psyker and you forgot and he's hidden behind something and you forgot to smite, then, you know, hey, if you, you had your smite lined up, take your smite. Yeah. So um, making sure that players feel like they're engaged in the game, one, and making sure that they feel like, hey, you know, you, you didn't spend all that time in your basement painting models, <laughs> packed it all up and come here for naught. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. It seems like a lot of time, uh, like especially if there's a very big swing in the score, that as long as you can keep that that positive um, attitude and point out to your opponent like cool things that happen with their army during the game, that you can really you can really keep uh, keep things amicable. Another thing that I do is I will avoid tabling a player. So if it looks like it's going to be a table, I'll offer to end the game. They may want to play it all the way out. That's fine with me. But if it looks like it's going to be a tabling, then I will offer. I mean, unless it's, it's like uh, point driven and it looks like, you know, the points are going to matter. Uh, I will also offer to not necessarily grind the game all the way out. E- even with me at this point, I can say I'm looking at the math. I can see this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I'm not likely to get this. You know, I, I'm going to go ahead and concede because if I do that, it's a chance because of the time we can both get another game in. That's a good point. Yeah, that's true. Especially, you know, if you go on like a Thursday to a store, you want to play for the evening. If you, if there's no way you can get back on top, if there's no way that game's going to end well, then yeah, just call it and, and move on to the next one. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, I've been in some places where I bought an army. I, I lay my army out, and the person says, "You know what? I, I don't, I don't really have an answer to any of that." And I'll, hey, well, this is the army I got. Do you want to play? You want to keep playing? You, what, what do you want to do? You know, 
uh, let me give it a try or no, nah, uh, that's not, I'm not going to do well there. Okay. Well, let's find other opponents. Yeah. I think with that though, I think like if you're going to play, see the thing that, that bothers me about that is that you, when you go to play an opponent, you should, you should make an all comers list. If you don't have something else. So aside. if you guys aren't playing like a narrative game and you've decided, Oh, I want your, you know, I'm going to assault you with a bunch of elite, you know, space wolves. I want you to play, you know, whatever. But I think it really bothered me one time where we, we had, and I'm not going to go into it, we had an opponent, we were playing a, a narrative game and a tournament, and somebody changed their list based off what they saw in our list. And it wasn't like a it wasn't like a competitive tournament. So we were just like, okay, cool, whatever. But it, it did affect the game, and it gave them an advantage to to play something to hard counter what we had, right? So I think I think you know giving your opponent too many allowances can create kind of an unintended side effect of you not enjoying the game too and you you know that then wastes your time. So I think there's a good balance to strike there and you kind of have to figure out what it is yourself. Cool with that we will take a short break and come back with section 3. Stay tuned. Back, section three, tactical upload here, episode twenty-two of Crew Shaken. Today we're talking about terrain, basic terrain rules, uh, cover rules, uh, talking about weapons that ignore line of sight and ignore cover, and uh, cogniz things like that. Carlo, why don't you walk us through how terrain works with regard to saving throws, etc. Okay. Um, well, terrain's pretty simple on Eighth Edition. Um, so I'll, lead, I'll read the little blurb here and then we can kind of get into it so terrain and cover on page 181 in the main rulebook the battlefields of the far future are littered with terrain features such as ruins craters and twisted corpses or copses i wonder if that's supposed to be cor- what's a copse a copse is a group of tree a group of trees yep uh, okay yep all right cool damn oh, that's crazy you know that tim all right cool <laughs> uh but model it, 10 it, what's crazy <laughs> is you caught a type on the book <laughs> Copses. All right. Uh, models can take shelter within such terrain features to gain protection against incoming weapons fire. So here's the rule if a unit is entirely on or within any terrain feature, add one to its model saving throws against shooting attacks to represent the cover received from the terrain. In parentheses, invulnerable saves are unaffected. And then units gain no benefit from cover in the fight phase. So to repeat, if you're on a piece of terrain, uh, the whole unit has to be on or within the terrain feature. You get a plus one in your saving throw. Uh, so um, to be within or on terrain, you can have any part of the model on it. Like you can just be towing in with the model, but all the models have to be in or on terrain to receive the cover bonus. Everything in that unit. Yep. So this is this pertains to both terrain pieces with a base built onto it and terrain pieces without a base, meaning if it doesn't have a base, you just have to be within kind of the boundaries of several pieces of unbased terrain, or you're on a piece of based terrain. Right. I think it's very important to kind of talk over with your opponent on how you want to interpret the terrain, because I know a lot of people will interpret it differently. 
like if you have say you have like a copsis (laughs) 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 and uh you know it's just a bunch somebody maybe just has a bunch of freestanding trees and you want to kind of look at that as um some kind of forest terrain uh you have you have to talk with your opponent before the game starts to say like hey this i know these these trees are kind of too small by themselves to to count as a piece of terrain why don't we include the whole area as you know say that say this um like a rough rough circle you're going around this area will be kind of as a terrain right if your unit is in that terrain area that gets the cover Let's go to the back of the rulebook, Carlo, and talk about some of the specific battlefield terrain rules, because this also applies to, to games of all sizes. Now, before we get into battlefield terrain, which is on page 248, I have to say that battle the treatment of terrain in the game, especially in this edition, can add a lot of flavor to your play. And often we will say, this is this, this is that, whatever the case may be. And then we will go back in our heads to previous editions. Some of these rules change the game, and they can add a lot of interesting play to the game if you pay attention to them. Yeah, I think, um, I I know for myself, I wish I played with more of the battlefield terrain rules in mind. I feel like we tend to forget about them a lot and just kind of like count everything as ruins. You know what I mean? I don't know if anybody else has that. Yeah, it's true. Right. Yeah. Experience. Sometimes um, I'm playing a game and we'll say this counts as woods, but then we won't remember the impact that woods have. In specific, in addition to giving cover saves, if you charge through or you cross the base of a wood, you have to subtract two from your charge distance. Yeah, let, let, let's go through the rules. We're, let's let's just look at page uh, 248. Um Lavelle mentioned woods, so I'll I'll kick it off with the woods uh, descriptive copy here. Infantry units that are entirely on the base of a wood receive the benefit of cover. That's the whole unit on the base. If your wood is not on a base, discuss with your opponent what what the boundary of the wood is before the battle begins, which is what Carlo just spoke to. Other units only receive the benefit of cover if at least 50% of every model is actually obscured from the point of view of the shooting unit. So you can be obscured within the woods, half of every model. So hold on. I don't know. To be obscured, 50% of your model has to be out of line, out of sight. Units other than infantry in this case, yes. Yeah, right, other mm-hmm. than infantry. Yep. So a lot of times people confuse that um, when, they, when they play because a lot of times for ease of play, we don't always have terrain that really demonstrates woods – the way it is, but I think paying attention to that is important. Models are slowed when charging through woods. If, when a unit charges, one or more of its models have to move across a woods base, you must subtract two inches from the unit's charge distance. Question for you guys. I got my models, my infantry units. We're sitting in the woods. We got cover save. They get close. We try to charge out. Minus two. Yeah. Yeah. You're moving across the woods base. Yep. Right. And if they try to charge me in, minus two. Minus two. Mm Yeah. Okay. I think the thing that really bothers me about this is that it's called woods and not copsis. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever happened to a good old-fashioned cops? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) You're funny. I like the way – we're in the rulebook again. I like the way this, this woods terrain is modeled. I wouldn't mind getting some of that stuff. Yeah, is that a GW? I'm sure that's a GW. Yeah, it must be. It might be I think a, it's a custom piece. I have a similar piece that somebody made for me with trees that you can actually move the trees. 
there's a space, a little indent for the trees, but it's got a grassy area. And you say, if you want to, it's woods. And even though you can move the trees so the infantry can all fit in there, you know, you still know what you're dealing with. We've decided this is woods. But Carlos, he said the, the, the thing that I can't stress enough. At the beginning of the game, discuss it with your opponent and agree. Uh, Carlo, why don't you read us the ruins rules? Ruins. The galaxy is littered with the remains of once proud cities. All right, so that, that's <laughs> out of the way. Uh, unless they can fly, vehicles, monsters, and bikes can only end their move on the ground floor of a ruin. And actually, uh, I think there was a fact that said they can't actually start on them either. Oh, okay. Um, so, like, you can't start a like a at the beginning Wraith of the Lord game on the top of yeah. You can't start like a Wraith Lord on the top of the floor of a ruin because it can't move off of it. And uh, I think they just released a fact like very early in the eighth edition that you know disallowed you from doing so. So, um, infantry are soon to be able to scale walls and traverse through windows, doors, and portals readily. These models can therefore move through the floors and walls of a ruin without further impediment. Uh, infantry units that are on a ruin receive the benefit of cover. Other units only receive the benefit of cover if at least 50% of every model is actually obscured from the point of view of the shooting unit. Um, I think they also released a fact for this, that the model has to be entirely on, like, wholly within the terrain and 50% obscured. Correct. I, I would have to double-check that. No, you're word. right. You're right, Carla. Yeah. And I think um, when you play a lot of players who may come from uh, previous edition ex editions, especially the ones that are returning, you know, you, you should make sure that you go over that. And again, I like to set the expectation before I take the shot. Lavelle, why don't you talk to us about craters? So craters are interesting. You, you don't see a lot. Of, you don't see them a lot anymore, but um, there used to be a lot on the field. And so it says that infantry models that are entirely within a crater receive the benefit of cover. Models are slowed when charging across craters. If, when a unit charges one or more of its models across a crater, you must subtract two from two inches from the unit's charge distance. So, you know, craters, um, they're a good way to kind of trench yourself in and protect yourself, as well as limit the other guy's ability to charge you. I wish there was, like... Um... When I think of a crater, like I think of almost like a big bowl, you know? Right. So I almost wish there was like a battlefield terrain rule where like you add two to your charge because you're like rolling into this thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you got gravity on your side. <laughs> but you lose the attack as you tumble. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're an orc. Then you can't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're an orc. Um, so here's barricades. Uh, infantry model within one inch of a barricade and behind it from the point of view of the firing unit receive the benefit of cover. In addition, enemy units can fight across a barricade, even though the physical distance is sometimes more than one inch. When resolving fights between units on opposite sides of a barricade, units can be chosen to fight and can make their attacks if the enemy is within two inches instead of the normal one inch. So you can swing away over the top of a barricade. I've never remembered to play this rule ever. But I do like it. <laughs> so you get you, you get cover for being behind it, and you can fight within two inches of it across the uh, the barricade. You have to be within two inches of the other model, right? Not right. the barricade, and so that allows the barricade to be between you 
and not have to be in, within an inch because the barricade is taking some of that space away. So it makes sure when you have a barricade, there's always a reason to be behind a barricade. I, I don't know why, but I think a barricade is one of those instances where I think it should offer you an additional save in close combat, but it doesn't. Nothing offers you a save in close combat. Once yeah, blades are drawn, it's all over. I wonder if that would be a good thing or a bad thing. What do you think? you think it'd be too much of an impediment for um, melee armies? Yeah, I think in their effort to make the combat part of 40k a little quicker and easier to get through, I think taking that, I think not getting that save is probably a good thing, or else you could be swinging away at somebody over a barricade forever. No, you could do it on the first turn, just on the charge turn. What do you mean? Yeah, I think the problem is that because of fallback, it would just be like one too many... I'm not, yeah, I got against melee art. You know what I mean? Because like, uh, you got this extra protection now against melee, and then they could just fall back and shoot. Lavelle, what about obstacles? So obstacles are very important, and you got to think through them when you play them. There are two type. There are two kinds of obstacles: tank traps, which are obstacles to vehicles and monsters, and tangle wire and, and things like that that you might model, which are os- obstacles to everything else. Units are slow when they attempt to move over obstacles. If when a unit advances or charges, one or more of its models have to move over an obstacle, you must half the unit's advance or charge distance as appropriate, rounding up. Titanic models are not slowed down by obstacles. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Flyers or things with the fly keyword aren't slowed down by obstacles as well. Correct. During the movement phase. Correct. But that's only for advancing or charging. Other than that, you can go right over the top of obstacles, yeah. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And when you advance a charge, if you have the fly keyword, you're not considered to be flying. Correct. Yeah. I'm actually kind of, like, bummed that this doesn't affect you all the time. Like, it should just slow things down, any type of movement they make. Because when I like like to do terrain, I like to get to choke points and choke you through the obstacles. I feel I wish there was a kind of a well-balanced way to determine terrain. I don't know if you guys have ever done it this way, but one time I went to a GW store to play and they like rolled a D6 for each quadrant of the battlefield or each like tile because I think there's six six uh 2 by 2 sections, right, on a battlefield. So they would roll like a D6 and or D3 and that's how many pieces of terrain they would put on that section. But it's still mm-hmm doesn't tell you like what to put and how to put it right so i'm kind of interested if there's like a very well balanced design or and things and like kind of like um a narrative way to do it too because like like where would you put these these uh barricades in where would you put the the obstacles in you know in a way to make the game really interesting because i I feel like most of the tables i played on in eighth have been have really crappy terrain like with the exception of when we play at Red Caps, but like any tournament I've been to, has been all like pretty pretty. Uh, except for Nova, I feel like Nova they put a lot, but like even then, yeah. there's nothing like sprinkled in around the battlefield. It's still yeah. just like big blocks of terrain around the table. It's it's almost like they're trying to stretch a little bit of terrain. I, I do like using I do like using like the scatter terrain as barricades yep. and obstacles. Yeah, I do like that. Yeah, just like a the, small the unit things. can duck behind some barrels. Yeah, the little the little things are really good for that. I have I have some of that for my table here at the house. Yeah. So two two things I want to bring up. 
So as you guys know, I play Infinity, um, the other another skirmish middle game, miniature game, and they have specific rules when you set up, and they tell you that one side should have elevation, more elevation, and the other side should have more cover, and those are the two things that the 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 opposing armies when they're choosing deployment zones have to go. Deployment zones are more static than 40k. When I was playing that big 2v2 game, um, when they, I, I got there early and I set up the terrain, and unconsciously, that's exactly what I did. One side had more elevation, and another side had more cover. And since they had the tile shooting army, they chose the elevation, and we chose the cover. And it worked out well. But I think t- terrain is very important. I just put together a terrain box, which is an entire table in mat that I'm taking over to the Gamers Heaven store. I played there a lot, and they do have a lot of terrain. But I noticed, you know, if you go to the store on a regular basis, that's a contribution you can make in terms of some of the terrain. And if everybody makes a little bit of contribution of terrain, you end up with a store and environment with a, a very diverse set of terrain that you can call upon. I want to talk about these other pieces of terrain in here that you see but in my, my view, I don't see people using them at all. Uh, the one that I want to read is this imperial statuary. Models within three inches of an imperial statuary that are at least 25% obscured by it from the point of the view of the firing unit receive the benefit of cover. That's interesting because it's less, uh, less of a requirement for cover. But this is the one that I almost never see. In addition, imperium units within three inches of Imperial Statuary, add one to their leadership. I've, I've never seen anybody do, use that rule, no. I had, a, I had a conversation with an opponent on Tuesday about this. How I always, and he, did, he does the same, I always forget leadership buffs or debuffs. I feel like in this, I don't know, I feel like in this edition, it's like not, it's just not the first thing on my mind, so I never, I never. I think because it's like, hilariously irrelevant most of the time like because i think we were talking about this yesterday right how you could just like spend two cp and auto pass morale you know and most of the time you're not going to have a really big morale test more than once or twice a game so and if you've got that two cp in your back pocket it's i must be playing this game wrong I take whatever uh, 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 leadership buffs I can get, man. Well, I think I, it's, it depends on what army you play, too. Like, I feel like, Lavelle, you play a lot of guard, so you have more models right. per unit, so it comes up more often. Carlo, what about fuel pipes? Oh, Promethium and other explosive fuels are pumped across many worlds in armored pipes. Fuel pipes follow all the rules for barricades, with the following addition. Roll a dice each time you make a saving throw of 7-up. Usually a roll of six, plus one for being in cover. For a model within one inch of a fuel pipe in the shooting phase. On a one, that shot has ruptured the pipe and caused a small explosion. The model's unit suffers a mortal wound. Has anyone ever used that? Never used it. No. I love it, though. I love it. I've never used it, though. <laughs> so so if, you, if you roll a perfect cover save... It's as if the you know the, the 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 save you know you you dodged the bullet literally, but then you get the penalty for having a perfect save by having to roll for that mortal wound. Wait, so you roll a little dice each time you make a saving throw. So if you roll, if, if, on your saving throw, you roll a six. Right, you're behind and, pipe. 
And then uh, for plus one for me for a model within one inch of a fuel pipe in the shooting phase. Oh, and that shadows rough. Okay, so it's like yeah, like you're being punished it's like for rolling. Your trans- <laughs> it's like your transport blew up. Yeah. Yeah, but you so you dodge the bullet. It goes into the pipe behind you, and there you are. Do you get hit by the the promethium splash? Yeah, you're like, dodge that Uh one. (laughs) But you know, it makes sense because you can take cover behind a gas pump. You could. (laughs) You you could. You certainly can. Oh, man. All right, what about Battlescape? Here we have the smoking hulls of tanks and the blasted remains of trees. They speak to the presence of mines and other more dangerous traps. Battlescapes follow all the rules for woods. With the following addition, roll a dice each time a model advances or charges across a battlescape. On a roll of one, that model is triggered a mine, and its unit suffers a mortal wound. The models that can fly can still trigger mines, but only if they charge across battlescape. That's a cool one. I've never ever used that one, but I do like that ever. one. Ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ever. I do like that. So you get the same, uh, you know, you're slowed when uh, charging across it, but... You have to roll a dice each time you move across it to see if you trigger a mine. I like that. that. That that's flavorful. So with hills, hills are very important because a lot of people get this hill rule messed up, and they consider hill area terrain. Hills, according to the rules, hills in elevated positions are often key tactical locations. Hills, whether freestanding or modeled into the battlefield itself are raised areas that offer troops on top of them, commanding views in fields of fire. Hills are always considered to be part of the battlefield rather than a terrain feature. I'm going to read that again. Hills are always considered to be a part of the battlefield rather than a terrain feature. And so models on top of them do not receive the benefits of cover. Models on top of them do not receive the benefits of cover. Some particularly large hills may block a model's visibility to a target, however, to a target unit, however. So you have to get a a model's eye view to see if you can see past or over the hill to get your target. But just being on the hill will not give you cover. And so when you you put a hill, when you think you're putting terrain on the board because you put a hill, you're really just putting a modeling feature to the battlefield. It's not going to necessarily impact the play unless you put something on that hill. Like an imperial statuary. (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of people just play hills as as area terrain because they don't have anything, any of the other terrain pieces. You know what I mean? So, Yeah, you know, coming, coming back to this, you can shoot through woods. That's, is that an accurate statement? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I noticed some people say, oh, you can't shoot through the woods. What? What, what is this, World War Two? What? <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. What? What? Yeah, I'm like, listen, I, I guarantee you my Necron can shoot you through those woods. <laughs> that's a guarantee there. It's true line of sight in eighth. Whatever you can see, you can shoot. Whatever you, that's exactly it. Um, I don't think we have to go over the scratch-built terrain thing. Yeah, that's basically just saying make up your own rules as you go. As long as everybody agrees, it's uh, it's a good way to add some fun to the game. I would like to use more of these rules, so I think in my next couple of games I'm going to try to get some to, to pay more attention to the barricades, to pay more attention to the you know the tank traps and the razor wire, uh, to pay more attention to woods. Certainly, it'd be great to have some some woods, especially as we talk about getting in, more into AOS. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to get our listeners to 
go either to our Instagram or our Facebook page and post some pictures of some of the terrain pieces that they use. I think that would be really, really good to give some inspiration. You guys saw the, the, the terrain that I just got for that desert board. I, I think and uh, the guy who made them, man, he's just... He should, I don't know. He's just like a wizard. Um, but I, I want to see other people's terrains and other people's boards because I think that's a big part of giving other players inspiration. All right. So April's going to be terrain month here at Crew Shaken. Lavelle, why don't you post some of the terrain that you just got to the Facebook and the uh, and the Instagram, and we'll uh, we'll ask our listeners to do the same. That's great. So I want to ask a question. Okay. Like, where do you guys go? If say I want to get, I was talking to Tim yesterday, and I was like, Tim. I need you to commission like a terrain set, commission painted terrain set for me. And he was like, and you were like, like, all right, what's set? And I didn't, I don't know. I haven't one, I haven't picked one out yet. So where do you go to pick a terrain set out that's not painted but nice? I don't understand. I don't understand your question, Carlo. What do you, what do you, where do you go to? Go ahead. Ask so me. Tim painted a terrain set he got from Frontline Game, right? So okay. it's a pre pre constructed terrain but not painted. Like, where do you find stuff like that? Do you go to Etsy? Do you go to eBay? Do you go to, like, a hobby-specific website? Are you going on frontline gaming for most of your terrain? Like, where are you guys going? So a lot of my terrain that I have is either repurposed, I say this loosely, toy pieces that I look at, and I look at the scale, and I say, hey, you could fit a Space Marine through that door. And and then all of a sudden, what once belonged to play school (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> belongs to um, a lot of it is a lot of repurposed stuff like that i'm often in um just the the normal stores like uh, ac moore or michael's and i'm looking at what they have for their um their fish tanks and various things and i'm cobbling pieces together in addition to that uh, there's a lot of other skirmish level games like infinity and these people in support of Infinity, started putting together these t- terrain in a box. So you buy everything that you need for, uh, I think it's a, a normal ter- Infinity game is 4 by 4 And so that terrain, if you start looking at those pieces, you can buy them entire sets or, or pieces. You can get a lot of different things. Personally, the biggest inspiration I always get from terrain is always going to the Nova. You know, and a lot of the Nova terrain is made by other players who just are good at it and take the time and have a passion for it. Um, but I, I would say if I'm going to buy terrain, I will actually go to a lot of the people who are making terrain for um, other games. Todd from uh, Black Maria Designs does some really nice laser-cut wood and plastic terrain. Uh, some of it is infinity specific they have stuff for wild west exodus that would also work for some uh, aos kind of games they do some gothic stuff warsenal w-a-r-s-e-n-a-l i think they're european they do some really good looking terrain a lot mm-hmm. of their stuff is infinity uh, based plastic craft yeah plastic craft another good one yep 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 and and uh, carlo as you found out recently that th- there's a lot of good stuff on etsy too people who take you know a little bit of this a little bit of that and a bunch of you know, modeling clay and plaster Paris and kind of go to town and create something new out of all those disparate pieces. Micro Art Studios is another one. I played on a terrain board that um, was almost, it was like a Japanese village. It was, we played Infinity on it, but the scale was, was perfect. 
Um, and you know, and across the forty across the forty k Imperium, you can find just about any type of world in all of the worlds of mankind, or any alien terrain that you can do. And um, so, anything that you can buy, as long as the scale is right, you'll you'll get a good fit. Lavelle, I like the fact that you brought up. Um looking for fish tank supplies because every time I go to Petco to get cat food I'm always uh, in the, the uh, fish <laughs> tank supply area oh, seeing, yeah, if, seeing if anything's on drained. sale yeah I, 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 I have this vision someday of building like a like a 4x4 AOS board out of just uh, like those those <laughs> logs those really weird like fake withered log constructions they have you know you know I, but it's I, not I, cheap I, it's, I, it's not inexpensive which is the problem so. that is correct <laughs> I was going to say one of the things that I encourage people, if you conceptualize a board, I, just a concept in your head, and as you're going around the various things, various flea markets, um, even gaming, non-gaming flea markets, just keep your eyes open. You'll see little things that you say, hey, oh, that would be good for this. That would be good for this. And kind of start collecting them to put your board together. Carlo, check out uh, Warsenal. Okay. I'll check yeah. that out. I was, I'm actually looking at like a feudal Japan terrain set right now. Now that you're talking about that, I kind of want to. I know it's not in line with the 40k, but uh, <laughs> but it's cool. <laughs> it's very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm um, like trying to think about how I'm gonna get a miniature to stand on there, like a 32 millimeter, like yep. <laughs> Space Marine to stand on the roof of this pagoda. But you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I hope everybody benefited from our discussion of terrain here on Tactical Upload. Remember, it's a plus one to your saving throw, and do try some games with all the specific rules for each piece of terrain. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, section four, future history. I have I have two codices here in the studio with me that are tainting the air that I am breathing. We're talking about the chaos gods. I have in front of me these are older codices, but I have chaos space marines and chaos demons, and there's a little bit of like warp taint kind of drifting off the top of it. It's not quite smoke. It's not quite heat haze. It's somewhere in between. And it's also shimmering with the weird, unnatural light of the warp. So we're talking about Chaos Gods. We know there are four. There might be five, but we know there are four. We're going to talk about the Chaos Gods and their favorite legions, because every Chaos God seems to have a favorite legion, or else a, or put another way, a legion that really, really loves a particular Chaos God. We're going to kind of put them into the uh, context of the history of 40K, and we're going to talk about our impressions of them as they appear in our games of 40K. I'll fire us up first with Zinch, the god of change. His favored chapter, Legion of Chaos Space Marines, is the Thousand Suns with their Egyptian-inspired armor. So Zinch is the god of change, He's all about the vitality and volatility of possibilities. You could say he's a god of hope, a hope for change, kind of the polar opposite of Nurgle's uh, uh, 
settling in for despair and kind of uh, relishing in one's state of despair. Zinch makes its home, I'm using its there because who knows, Zinch makes its home in the impossible fortress, naturally, at the center of the crystal labyrinth, as it should. And yes, you are welcome to visit any time, it says here in my notes. This is the only one of the Chaos God's fortresses that you should just come on in. Because guess what? You're going to get stuck in there forever because it's constantly changing. The only beings able to navigate the hallways of the impossible fortress and the crystal labyrinth are lords of change. At the center of the fortress, that's where we can find the hidden library, where Zinch is often kicking back in a leather lounge chair reading or delighting in his ability to change the skeins of fate. I like the Thousand Suns. I like Magnus. Zinch, the Lords of Change, Kairos, Fate Weaver that we talked about in the last episode, the two-headed, uh, you know, Thunder Turkey model, uh, one head seeing the future, one head seeing the past. I like the notion that Zinch is sort of always, he's everywhere, he sees, he sees almost everything. His impossible fortress is pretty amazing, it, neither time nor space exists within it, it just kind of is. And the Thousand Suns, Rubik Marines look awesome. Their Terminators are amazing. Uh, their connection to their psychic abilities is great. Um, I'm, I'm down with Zinch. How do you guys feel about Zinch? Confusing. I stay away from him. I mean, unless I need something. I just don't <laughs> like. I don't like birds. So, you know. But I do like. I do like um, Rubric Marines. I think they're really sweet. Uh, Armand's a cool dude. Can I just say one thing real quick that it kind of bothers me? So, like, like Tim makes this, this uh, run sheet for us every episode for us to talk about stuff. And he put Seench last, but we're talking about him first. I feel like that's a very Seench-y thing to do, Tim. I changed it, Carlo. <laughs> I changed it. I was taken over by the power of Seench. <laughs> I flipped the scripts. <laughs> I want you to know, both of you, I will be reporting you both to the Inquisition. Um, I want no parts of this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you're going to all get yours. <laughs> I'm getting reported by association. Seems very Imperium of you. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I like about uh, the thing I like about Thousand Suns and their, their, their favorite Chaos God scenes, I like the Thousand Suns floating disc guys. The, uh, what, are, what are those sorcerers called? The, uh, Sangors. Yes, love those. Love those. Lavelle, why don't you take another one of these Chaos Gods for us? Not for any particular reason, just randomly choosing one, I'm going to go with Slanesh, the Dark Prince, the Emperor's Children's, that's his his crew right there, and the demon formerly known as Fulgrim is currently the Prince. Um, she or he, because we're never quite sure with Slanesh, just wants to have a special party. Slanesh was born from the immorality of the ancient Eldor civilization. There was a big birth fest and where Slanesh fed on the souls of almost all of the Eldar across the galaxy. Now, Slanesh is the most, to me, interesting. Not that I like him. If the Inquisition is listening, I'm just telling you what I heard on the street. So whenever an Eldar dies, Slanesh gets their soul. So to prevent that from happening, when the Eldar die, instead they go into the crystals. And they kind of keep those crystals to keep them away from Slanesh. But sooner or later, Slanesh is going to get all of them. So before, you know, the Eldar all lost their mind, there was no Slanesh. It was their 
debauchery that kind of all infused and created Slanesh in the warp. So now, here's my question to you guys. You may not know this in the lore. Well, was this before or after the Dark Eldar split? Well, so Slanesh was always around, technically. So but was true. like, he was like birthed by the Eldar, but he was still always there. So it's like a very weird situation. You know what I mean? But the Dark Eldar were the, the, the Eldar who were all about Slanesh. After the, the debauchery was over, after the Eldar civilization fell, the Dark Eldar were like, no, we were on the right path before. We should have just kept doing all the weird stuff and it would have been all right. And I like how they, the Eldar, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's where the Dark Eldar came from, right? Am I right about that? I think that's the case. And, and I like how the Eldar call Slanesh uh, she who thirsts because she's thirsty for more um, Eldar souls. Listen, Why it, it, says, it's, it says in the lore Slanesh was given life by the immorality and hubris of the ancient Eldari Empire. As the empire reached its zenith, they became lost in their own decadence, for, for they experienced sensation and emotion to a far greater degree than any other intelligent species of the galaxy. Their capabilities and their high technology mean they didn't have to work, so that's all they did. And over several generations, the indolence came and they 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 begin to rule and pervert their spirits and their collective psychic reflection of this caused the the chaos power and Slanesh to kind of form. So it does say that it does describe Slanesh as dormant. It says the dormant Slanesh fed upon the unchecked collective psyche of the Eldari drawing it. And so this is how I translate it. This is for Carlo. And so when the Inquisition interrogates him, he'll be able to answer. Hey, I I know these things because I uh we don't care why you know them. Yeah. <laughs> so er, the thing er, of it er. is in the warp there are a bunch of emotions that are reflections of what we have over here in this side. And what happens is there are a bunch of minor things going around there. And so Slanesh as a minor thing might have been there, but it was their collective focus to this debauchery that created that caused Slanesh to rise up to the to the the, the the point where it became a chaos god. Does that sound lorish? That makes yes. sense. Yes, I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not saying I'm this picking is true, up what you're putting down. But I heard I heard that the collective, if you will, worship of the emperor is what has created him into an entity, uh, if you will, a chaos god of He's order. Chaos god. And that allows him to manifest his own, if you will, demons in this realm. And they come in the form of things like Celestine, uh, the damned. These are manifestations of the emperor. This is what I heard. I'm not saying it's true. And so everything, like the book, the... the, the um, the um, uh, the master of mankind. One of the key things in there was the first murder, and that was so that was so instrumental that it echoed into the warp and it took on a life of its own. And so that's that's an interesting thing. And when you talk about understanding, when you think about the lore, when you try to understand what is going on in the chaos, like my sons and I, we argue we argue about this all of. 
And one of the things that they keep saying is, hey, dad, you're not understanding this. Our universe is an anomaly in the warp it's all around us. And this anomaly, they don't know how it came about. And so they're always trying to fix the anomaly by reverting this pocket that is our universe of order back into chaos. It's like a big pothole in the world. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So that's Slanesh. Um, Slanesh is very interesting in that it, it to one of the things about Slanesh that I see more than a lot of the other, you give yourself to Slanesh. You cross the line. You know, um, I guess you do that with all of the chaos gods. Because with the Lord of Change, you're looking for not. And, you know, from there, it slowly insinuates in there. Yeah, it's interesting yeah, about the for, forbidden knowledge. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Carlos. Slanesh, like you give more of yourself than you do with, to, with the other chaos gods. Like, I don't know if that's putting it the right way. But. Yeah, but you might Because it's such an term. intimate, like, thing. It's like. Yeah, I don't know. It's sexual. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, Carla, why don't you talk about Nurgle? Or why don't you take Corn? I know you. I know you're down with Corn for AOS. Uh, now he wants to act like he doesn't know what we're talking about. <laughs> I don't know anything about Corn. I'll take Corn. Corn is the blood god. The world eaters worship Corn. And their demon is, for, is the man or the Primarch, formerly known as Angron. Corn is the taker of skulls, wrath incarnate, torn into being by the uncountable atrocities of the past. The code of corn is very simple it's blood, and his temple is any battlefield. His strength grows with every life taken in anger across the galaxy. Corn's weapon is a two handed sword, Woebringer. He gets along, Corn as an entity gets along with orcs really well because all they like to do is fight. He's easy to worship. All you got to do is whoop ass and get a skull for the skull throne or some blood for the blood guy, whichever way you want to do it. I like the thing, you know, <laughs> and I say it all the time Corn cares not from whence the blood flows, only that it flows. So as long as we're fighting and killing, it could be the corn people or the other people, as long as somebody's fighting and killing, Corn's really digging his position. He's growing and he's getting more powerful. I really like how if you're playing a corn berserker army, the flavor of that army speaks so well to what corn is all about. Like maximum destruction, maximum bloodshed, maximum close combat. It's a very flavorful force that speaks exactly to, you know, skulls for the skull throne, which I, re- I really like. So, you, you know what I like about the corn army? It seems I'm not I'm not simplifying it, but it seems really easy to play. Wait right there. I'm coming over to smash you in your face. <laughs> right. Just get into combat. <laughs> just, just get into combat. Just get into combat. Right. Just get into I'm combat. I'm just coming over there. Shoot up as many of you guys as you want, but we're coming over there to smash you in the face. And when we get there, it's going to be a party. They're going to hit you and hit you again and then hit you, then roll into you and fight again. If ever there, if you're playing a corn against the corn army, if you're playing, if ever there was need for apps for rolling a dice, that's it. I was playing one guy. He's like, okay, I've got 80 attacks and I need to do this twice. Good Lord. (laughs) But it was my custode, so we didn't just fall. Carla, why don't you take Nurgle for us? 
How did I end up doing Nurgle anyway? Jeez. Didn't we just talk about this today? <laughs> Nurgle is the god of new life. Uh, Nurgle is freedom from suffering by accepting and reveling at suffering. Nurgle is new beginnings. Papa Nurgle and his demons are always laughing amidst the slaughter. So pleased are they to be able to enlighten and liberate the galaxy and the warp. Infestation, plague, infection, disease are his gifts to the galaxy. Nurgle is like the god of putrescence. He's the god of um, he he's like the god of keeping things the same. Whereas like he's he's a polar opposite of Zinch, who we were talking about before. Nurgle is like the god of decay. He wants to see things like slowly like collected in nothingness over time. But um, how how do the how does his worshippers survive? Um, you know with like growths, I guess. Yeah, I mean, pox, pox walkers, pox walkers are just carrying, you know, they're carrying Nurgle's gifts. They're carrying more, more, more disease with them wherever they walk. You know, so Nurgle does need some. He needs carriers to, you know, spread his his love and joy all over the place. L- listen to this though: the Death Guard. So that's one of the things about all of the Chaos Marines. For the most part, the Chaos Marines have been around for a long time. So the Death Guard, who are worshippers of Nurgle, they're all diseased and rotted. Why haven't they just withered away? It's kind of like a zombie, where like they just like nothing stops them, you know, which is like so represented by their um, disgusting resiliency on, in the game. I guess like so. I guess the the lore around it is that they're just surround. They're like pig pen from. Charlie Brown, they just got like the the swarm of flies over them and the dust and dirt and stuff, and so like you're trying like trying to shoot this thing, and it's just like completely obscure. It's, it's got its own cover, you know. The Black Legion, um, to my understanding, based on what the Inquisition has told me, they worship what they call chaos undivided. You guys heard that term? So there's this feeling that. Um, all of these guys, all of the guys that we look at here, Slanesh, Nurgle, Korn, and Zinch, they all represent this different aspects of the same chaos god. And so, you know, they don't worship any one of them. They worship the whole package. Whole package. It's like the uh, like the whole Adobe suite. You know? Right, you get you the whole package. You don't spend all your time on Illustrator. You gotta use all of it. Yeah. <laughs> But I I think when once you go down the specific, if, I'm saying that uh, if you are into chaos, once you go down a specific channel, what happens is you become um, a heretic. Of, well, yeah, you you already a heretic, and you know innocence means nothing. So I I think what happens is you you start to feel all of those things. Um, <clears throat> let me see. Listen, I'm gonna read something. Followers of Chaos Undivided venerate chaos itself, seeing the four major chaos gods as a single pantheon to be worshipped equally as different emanations of the same universal force. Of all the worshippers of chaos, they follow chaos in its purest form. They can interpret the meaning of chaos in a variety of ways, including as a single god, worship the four major chaos gods equally or favor one slightly over the others. The Chaos Lords and Daemon Princes of Chaos Undivided are at an advantage in their ability to unite any of the forces of chaos under their leadership, even if they would normally worship a place like Korn and Slanesh. 
So the war bands of chaos undivided are always the most diverse. The majority of the traitor legions worship chaos undivided, including the feared black legion of Abaddon the Despoil, the greatest champion of, A- of chaos undivided. See? They Alpha kind of legion, like black worship. legion, iron warriors, night lords, word bearers, and they say furies who are just demons. All of them are going to the chaos undivided category. And they got a couple furries? of the furies. Oh, furries. Uh, I, yeah, that's what I said the first time. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they have a couple of specific um, chapters that they talk about here. But yeah, yeah. Okay, so chaos undivided is... is it's almost me, like the warp itself. Like you're worshipping the warp, the warp itself rather than... And then right. Yeah. There are four chapters that are specifically with a god. The Emperor's Children with Slanesh, Thousand Sons with Zinch, World Eaters with Corn, Death Guard with Nurgle. That was section four of Future History. Stay tuned, we'll come back and wrap up the show. The Chosen, we're going to wrap up the episode with our picks in the hobby, our favorite things that we've discovered in the hobby in the last couple of weeks since our last recording, which is actually two months ago, but we're getting back on the horse, I promise. Uh, My favorite thing about 40K recently has been this campaign that uh, Sasha has put together. It's uh, loosely following the Vigilus book. Uh, Vigilus Alpha is the name of the campaign. Um, It's nice because it's a reason to play a game with somebody who's not in your normal circle of people that you play with, which has been cool. Um, it's nice to have two flexible point levels that he's put in, so you can play a smaller point game or a bigger point game, so it's nice to have that flexibility of, do you want to settle down for a longer evening, or do you want to just do something quick after work, you know? Um, and the missions are complex. The scoring is complex, but it's it all seems to serve the it seems to serve the flavor of you know, uh, a map tile, map domination style campaign that he's put together. So I've been enjoying that. I look forward to another, I think there's five more weeks left in the campaign, so I look forward to that. Um, Yeah, so I'm all about campaign play right now. And I'm stoked to get Vigilus Ablaze soon, because I did like the Vigilus book, the first Vigilus book, so I'm looking forward to getting the second one too. Carlo, what have you been really, uh, really, uh, you know, amped up about in the hobby in the last couple of weeks? Hmm... Well, I think I'd have to say I've been I've been uh getting amped up more about um building terrain features myself. I went into the hobby shop and picked up a bunch of these miniature trees and more more traditional uh hobbying materials and I'm trying to get into using those a little bit. So um like uh woodland scenics type stuff. So uh, I really like the look of it, the feel of it. I love um, kind of uh, that deciduous terrain uh, feel. So I think I'd have to go with that. Awesome. Lavelle? I'm going to have to say 40K related, not directly 40K, has been Titanicus. Um, I have been really, really pumped at Titanicus. I played a couple of games, and then after I played my third game, I said, screw this. My maniples aren't good enough. <laughs> and started and started racing around getting um, other pieces. You know, I've been playing a lot of the 40K-related games, Blackstone Fortress, 
um, Titanicus right now is really, really amazingly fun for me. And so I've been really, really pumped uh, about Titanicus and everything that's going around along with that. I'm hoping that ultimately they might find their way to give Titanicus type treatment to Battlefleet Gothic. Yeah, I would really, you know, Games Workshop, I know you listen to this uh, podcast uh, religiously, and you all sit around the table listening and taking notes, but that's where you should. Wait, really? <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. I've heard this from the Inquisition. No. So I take I, back I, that thing I said about the combat roster <laughs> four episodes ago. So it's been Titanicus. I am really, really pleased overall with the um, the depth of gaming opportunity that is coming out in the 40K universe. I'm really, really pleased by that. I've been watching all the new potential codex releases. Um, I'm not. I know the chaos players are all a guy. A, a, they're just amazed about the new chaos codex, and but I've been more closely looking for the Sisters of Battle codex that's supposed to be coming out, and um, I actually, and I, I, in my entire 40k life, I've never done this, uh, but I picked up. A, I've signed on for a subscription to the White Dwarf, because yeah, but what's coming out in there. Is not, not just models. It's things that are is impacting gameplay, um, and so I'm 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 I've got my my feet a little bit into Age of Sigmar, but you know the 40k stuff, the various things they're releasing in there. Uh, to me, it's making the game more of a living game, and supposed to us waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for some really months for a new Codex release. I find that the game is evolving, and you know. If you enjoy 40K even a little bit, I can't say it enough. Get out and play. With that, we will wrap up episode 22. We'll see you sooner rather than later for episode 23, where we will continue our Big Game Hunter feature. We will have another Welcome Scouts section and more great stuff from the 40K hobby. Thank you for listening. As always, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash crewshaken, or at crewshaken on Instagram, where you will soon see some photographs of Lavelle's new terrain set, and do post some photographs of your own terrain and playing surfaces. We'd love to see them. For Crewshaken, I have been Tim. I'm Lavelle. And I'm Carlo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.